Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, For those of you who are guests with us today, it's so good to have you here to join us for worship. My name is Jeremy. Um, uh, I have the privilege of serving here as a senior pastor. And so uh, we are going to be opening uh, into a Christmas series for this week and for next week. If you're with us last week, we celebrated 90 years of ministry here at first. And actually that happens, I think the 16th is the official day. So we're somewhere right around that, whatever day today is. It's Sunday, that much I know. Um, And we're going to be studying this week and next week Isaiah 9, a very familiar Christmas passage, but we're going to be doing a deep dive on both what these words mean and also why are they written in the context that they are. And so um, just to kind of orient you to where we are going to be, the book of Isaiah is, is a well-beloved book, but, but, but it's a book that sometimes we get lost as to what's happening, where, and how do I need to know that, and where do I place this. There, there's a couple things I want to share about the book of Isaiah as we begin this morning. The first thing is this. There's two kind of predominant themes that override the book of Isaiah. The first one is judgment. Can you say judgment? judgment. All right. And the second one is hope. Can you say hope? All right, so judgment and hope, two big, big, big themes in the book of Isaiah. And if you read through, there's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. And if you read through, you come through chapter one, verse, or chapter one, verse one, all the way to the end of chapter 39. The predominant message of those chapters is judgment. All right, you pick it up in 40 and you go to 66, the end of the book, the predominant message of those chapters is hope. That does not mean that those, you only get judgment here and you only get hope here. But generally speaking, when you approach these two halves of the book, that's, that's one way um, that scholars tend to differentiate between the two. Now, judgment, the purpose of judgment in the context of Isaiah is to bring purification. Isaiah's message, and we're going to talk about this quite a bit today, Isaiah's message is to come to a people who have a hard time hearing the voice of God and doing it. They're God's covenant people, and yet they walk in the other direction so many times. Sound familiar to us maybe some days? So you have chapters 1 through 39 talking largely about judgment, but in the midst of judgment, there are these hope-filled passages, and that's one of the ones we're going to study today. Um, and then 30, or 40 and following, you know, chapter 40 begins with, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And I tell you, what, what, what better word than comfort to a people who have experienced exile in all form of, of um, trial in their life, many times due to their own hand. What I want you to understand is that while judgment's purpose is to purify, hope reminds people that God is faithful amidst their unfaithfulness. And so these two themes, judgment and hope, are not mutually exclusive. Uh, when Isaiah prophesies judgment, he always has hope. He always has hope that God will be true to his word and to his promises. And yet when he offers hope, he even goes to offer hope and say, do this, but if you don't, here's what will happen. 
There's the reality of judgment for people who don't um, follow the way that the Lord has, teach, has been teaching them to go. So within this 66 um, books, or sorry, 66 uh, chapters, um, you have separate books that occur within here too. This is helpful for you. Our passage today lies within a section of books that some scholars call the Messianic book or the Messianic scroll. And, and it is from chapter 7 to chapter 12, the end of chapter 12. And so if you want to kind of pick out Isaiah chapter 9, it, it falls almost in the middle of that. And you'll see why as we go through our, our study today. Um, but chapters 7 through 12 contain a series of writings from this pre-exile prophet um, and the purpose of his ministry is to call Judah to faithful obedience and to trust God, not the surrounding nations. To, to go to God with their concerns, with their struggles, with, with what they need for that day. Within these chapters contain very important things too. For example, we'll, we'll look here, but give you a heads up where we're going. In Isaiah 7, you have the very famous um, prophecy of the Messiah's birth. Um, you have, in chapter 9, you have a description of the Messiah's nature and or his character. And we're going to look at that more in depth next week when Mark Walters, one of our elders, teaches us through the names Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Or Father of Eternity is a better way to, to translate that. Um, but that'll be, next week we'll look at those names that describe his character and his nature. If you keep reading and you go to chapter 11, you find out that, the, that God reaffirms his promise that there will be a Davidic king to reign on the throne. So, you know where we're going next week. Today, what I'm doing and what I hope to do by God's grace, and we'll pray in just a moment here because there's a ton of stuff going on. But today, we're going to try and set a cultural context for why are we here, what is going on in Israel and in Judah at this time, and why does it matter for us today? Sound good? All right, couple of head nods, very good, no thumbs up. Here we go. Um, let's stand together as we pray. Isaiah chapter nine. Hear these very famous, well-known words. Isaiah chapter nine, verse one. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and have increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let's pray together. Our Father and our King, 
we ask that your spirit would lead and guide us into truth. That as we open these pages of your word, they would become more understandable to us, that they wouldn't just become a familiar Christmas passage, but that we would see in them how we are called to walk as people of God and how we are called to trust in the God who is with us, Emmanuel. And Lord, even as we come, many of us, many of us come from, from challenging weeks and our minds might be in 14 different places right now. And God, I ask that in the quietness of this moment, you would help direct our thoughts and our minds upon you and upon what you have for us. Lord, help me to, to speak clearly, to speak in a way that will help our church better understand your word so that we can learn and live out of your teaching. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our risen Messiah. And together we say, amen. Please be seated. All right, so chapter 9, verse 1 begins with very um, comforting language. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land. Gloom of the distressed land. This is kind of part of that judgment part. (laughs) We have gloom. We have judgment. We we have um, darkness that is very, very present in the land at this time. To understand historically what is going on, we have to ask the question, who is Isaiah talking about? Who is at play here? Uh, There's a lot of history behind this. And actually, if you wanted to later, we'll go through part of it today. But um, if you want to later, if you go to 2 Kings chapters like 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, you get an idea of the cultural context behind the kings that are ruling at this time. You keep reading through 2 Kings, you find out some of the, um, the tenor of the land as well. Another thing you could do if you want to go deeper this afternoon, you could read Isaiah 7 through Isaiah 12 all in one fell swoop. Get, get it from a bird's eye view. Um, now that you'll have some of the tools to to do that. But in Isaiah 9, Isaiah is a prophet, a a, a prophet who is there before the exile to Babylon and to Assyria. And he has answered a calling from God to speak on behalf of God to the people Judah. Uh, At this time, we have Israel and we have Judah. So to think of it this way, you've you've got Israel who is one united kingdom under David and under Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom begins to fracture. The people turn away from the Lord, and part of the kingdom, called Israel, turns away much more quickly. In fact, their exile happens in 722 BC. The events of right around where we're talking about here is right around 730 to 733 BC. So this is, this is a couple years before Israel is exiled off away from the land. Um, but you have you have Israel, which is the majority of the tribes, and then you have Judah, all right? When you see Judah, they're, they're the ones who remain more truthful, more faithful to God the longest. And so as, these, as the one nation breaks into two nations, one becomes more and more apostate, and the other one becomes apostate a little bit sooner, or a little bit more slowly, um, as they move away from the Lord. In Isaiah 6, and here's just for today, keep your thumb in Isaiah 9 because we'll be coming back here constantly, but we'll be looking in different places. So if you go back just a couple chapters to Isaiah 6, you have the calling of Isaiah the prophet. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, 
he sees the Lord seated on the, on, a, on the throne, high and lifted up, and his robe fills the temple, and he has this incredible encounter with the Lord. The Lord says, after a whole bunch of stuff, he says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah sends, says, send me. I'll be your prophet. I'll be the one to speak on your behalf to the people. And in Isaiah 6, verse 9, the Lord replies and he says, Go, say to these people, keep listening but do not understand. Keep looking but do not perceive. Dull the minds of these people, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. He's basically saying you're going to go and you're going to keep saying to these people, repent, repent, repent. Follow the Lord. And Isaiah says, for how long? You know, verse 11. Then I said, until when, Lord? And the Lord replies, until cities lie in ruins, without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. What is he saying? Well, he's saying this. Um, you're going to keep speaking until there's no one here because they've gone into exile because they've chosen to forsake the Lord. Exile, exile is judgment. It's one, it's one part of the Lord's judgment upon Israel. But exile is also a way that God goes before his people to say, I'm not finished with you. I will bring you back. And I'm going to use this punishment, if you will, as a chance to awaken your senses to the sin that you have caused. So, that's Isaiah 6. Isaiah's calling to preach and preach and preach, even when it's tough. And in Isaiah 7, you have the very uh, well-known verse uh, foretelling the coming Emmanuel. We'll, we'll jump there, and it happens in um, verse 14. Uh, we'll start in verse uh, 13. The king in question here, in fact, let's actually back up to verse 10 of chapter 7. says, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Ahaz. You see a king's name, there's a whole context and there's a whole history behind that. We'll get there in a minute. Ask for a sign from the Lord, Isaiah says to Ahaz, from the depths of Sheol to the heights of heavens. But Isaiah replied, I will not ask, I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Then he says this, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel means God with us in Hebrew. So you have Isaiah coming to Ahaz, and he's essentially saying, Ahaz, you're in a whole lot of trouble here. Because what is happening is you have the king of Israel and you have another king from the region, from Aram or from Damascus, and they're coming at you because you're separated nations, but they want to form an alliance with you because they want to fight against Assyria, who is the big dog. They're the big kind of plunders that are coming this way. And Ahaz the king, the king of Judah, is faced with a choice. Am I going to trust Isaiah's word that God will provide for us, that God will keep us safe, or am I going to trust in something else? 
That's the whole context. If you were to read chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, that's what's going on. He's faced with the choice, will I trust God when it's possible our nation could be carried off into exile? Ahaz comes from a godly lineage. Uh, his father and his grandfather are both, according to 2 Kings, are, are both men who feared the Lord. It actually says they feared the Lord, but they did not remove the high places. So they feared the Lord and honored the Lord in most things, but there were still things in the land that were um, against the Lord's will. Their names were Uzziah and Jotham. Um, they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, 1 Kings 15, if you want to look at that. Ahaz is 20 years old when he becomes king. He becomes king and he engages in detestable practices. Uh, keep your finger in Isaiah. Go back to 2 Kings with me for just a minute because I want you to see how this king ruled. Um, Isaiah, or sorry, 2 Kings chapter 16, if you would. We find out a little bit about Ahaz. 2 Kings chapter 16, always good to bring your Bible uh, so that we can follow this along easily. 16, verse 1, in the 17th year of Pekah, son of Remaliah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, became king of Judah. Ahaz is 20 years old when he becomes king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, like uh, Lord his God, like his ancestor David, but he walked in the way of the kings in Israel, of Israel. He even made his son pass through the fire, imitating the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. So the thing that marks Ahaz's kingship is that he engages in cultic child sacrifice. Um, he burns incense and sacrifices on high places, the hills, and every green tree. He is not a king like the ones that have come before him. He's not a king who has the heart for God like David. He's not a king even like his father or his grandfather who have a heart for the Lord. He, he is someone who engages in absolutely wicked practices. You'll find in verse 5, Aram's king Rezin, Israelite's king Pekah, son of Remaliah, come to wage war against Jerusalem. And, and there is fear that is instilled in the heart of Ahaz. And, and eventually, if you keep reading throughout the chapter uh, there in 16, you'll find out that he eventually decides, I'm going to go to Assyria. I'm going to trust Assyria more than Israel. I'm going to trust Assyria more than Damascus. I'm going to trust Assyria more than God to provide for what we need. I want to give you a picture of how dark this man's life is because when we come to Isaiah chapter 9, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. We're looking at a land that is dark. It's pitch black, almost. There's very few people who have sought to honor the Lord, including the king. Now, it's not just so the way of the king goes, so goes also the people, because the people have their own waywardness towards God. But certainly, if you have a king that has chosen not to honor the Lord, it has an incredible impact upon those who come before him. Ahaz's spiritual condition is one of uh, not very good. 
He's a wicked dude who did wicked things and who walked in darkness. The people walked in darkness. And the only remedy for darkness is light. You can't go to another place of darkness and presume to be able to see. The only way you can remedy darkness is with light. And as we go through Isaiah, you begin to see how this light comes. And as you go through the rest of the Bible, you begin to see how this light is. Um, my in-laws have, have some land down in northern Indiana where they live. They've got about 70 acres. And one of the things we like to do uh, during the course of our trips there and our visits there, sometimes we'll take a night hike, all right? You, you go to the back 60 or so, and there's about three to four miles of groomed trails. And we always take um, flashlights. We take headlamps. Uh, if we've got our kids with us, they stay fairly close. They don't go off. They're not running ahead or running behind. We take the dog with us. The dog stays close and she just watches and makes sure everybody's okay. But if you turn off the light and it's a really dark night, you begin to think, where am I? Maybe you've been there. Maybe, maybe you've experienced darkness in some incredible way, either in a physical way or maybe even in a spiritual way where you, where you open up your eyes and you say, God, God, where are you? What's going on here? I, I, I can't see. The only remedy for darkness is light. The only remedy for wickedness is light shining on it. The only remedy for sin is it being exposed to the light. As Mark uh, and I were studying over the past couple weeks, getting ready for this two-part series, he made a fantastic connection um, to, to the Gospels. And I want to invite you just to kind of hold your place in Isaiah and turn with me to, I believe it's Matthew chapter 1, if I've got my thing correct here. I believe it's Matthew chapter 1. It's not Matthew chapter 1. I believe it's Luke chapter 2. <laughs> Yes, it is Luke chapter 2. Okay. Uh, Luke chapter 2. We find a man in the story of Jesus' birth, and his man, this man's name is Simeon. And in verse 25, Luke 2, verse 25, it says, There's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. He's looking forward to Israel's consolation. All right, consolation is a really big word. Sometimes we sing it. It simply means the coming of the Messiah with his salvation for the nations. All right, he's looking forward to the coming Messiah, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple complex. When the parents of, of Jesus brought in their child Jesus to perform for him that which is customary under the law. This man, Simeon, righteous, devout, full of the Spirit, he sees this baby, takes him in his arms, and he praises God, and he says this. This is verse 29 of Luke chapter 2. Now, Master, you can dismiss your slave in peace, as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples. A light, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. For those of you who have young kids, if someone were to come up and take your child, hey, let me see that kid, it may be okay to you, it may not be okay to you, especially during cold and flu season, 
But here's a man who comes up and with the eyes of faith, he sees we've been walking in darkness. We've been waiting for this and this is the one. This is the one who will not just bring redemption, not just bring truth, he'll bring light. I love that old hymn uh, that we sing at Christmas time, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. We sang it this morning, hark the herald angels sing. The birth of Jesus the Messiah brings light to darkness. It brings light. Now, go back to uh, Isaiah chapter 9 with me for a moment. In Isaiah chapter 7, actually, chapter 7, you have this prophecy of Emmanuel, the one who will come, God with us. And then in Isaiah chapter 8, to kind of reorient us to what is going on in these chapters, in Isaiah chapter 8, God comes to Isaiah and he says, the Assyrians are coming. The king has decided he would rather, I'm paraphrasing here, the king has decided he would rather trust Assyria than trust my word. And in fact, I've given him my word in Isaiah 7 because he didn't ask me for a sign. I said, ask me for a sign. He said, no, I won't test you. He's demonstrating false piety there. He he's really doesn't care about honoring or the Lord by not testing him. He really just doesn't want to follow the Lord. The Lord gives him a sign. We come to Isaiah chapter 8. And, and he says these words to Isaiah in verse... Um, Verse five and following, the Lord speaks to him again, because these people, meaning the people of Judah, have rejected the slowly flowing waters of Shiloah, and they've rejoiced with Rezin, who is one of the other kings, the son of Remaliah, the Lord will certainly bring against them the mighty rushing waters of the Euphrates River, that is the king of Assyria in all of his glory. It will overflow its channels and spill over all its banks. It will pour into Judah, flood over it, sweep over it, reaching up to the neck, and its spreading streams will fill your entire land. And then he says the word, Emmanuel. All right? So he's saying, here's the judgment that's coming. The king said, we will trust in Assyria. God says, fine, you will trust in Assyria. And you will find out that Assyria is an awful taskmaster. You think you're going to be saved by them. You're only going to be owned by them. You're going to become their servants and their slaves. But in the midst of this, in the midst of this, Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the midst of them being taken off to a foreign land, being dominated by foreign people, God is with them. Not only that, the Lord continues speaking, band together peoples, verse nine of of Isaiah chapter eight, and be broken, pay attention to all you distant lands, prepare for war and be broken, prepare for war and be broken. Devise a plan, it will fail, make a prediction, it will not happen because God is with us, Emmanuel. You have a picture of God in these chapters that even though his people are going away from him, God has not left them. He hasn't. He is there the entire time with them because he loves them, because they are his covenant people, and because he will bring them back. He will bring them back from their folly. And so uh, as Judah is unfaithful to God, Isaiah says this to them, uh, or sorry, the Lord says this to them in verse 11. For this is what the Lord said to me with great power, to keep me going from the way of the people. 
The, the Lord said, do not call everything an alliance these people say is an alliance. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified because everyone else in the land is scared to death. They're wondering what is going to happen to us. And he comes to Isaiah and he says, don't be afraid. You know that they're going to Assyria. You know that they're going to be taken off in captivity, but don't be afraid. What are you to do? Verse 13, you are to regard only the Lord of hosts as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. And then he says this in verse 14. He says, he will be a sanctuary. The Lord will be a sanctuary. But for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over, a rock to trip over, and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What is he saying? He's saying, if you trust me, I will be your safe, secure dwelling place, Isaiah. Think of what Isaiah's mission is. Isaiah's mission is to go on behalf of God and to say, you people are not following God. Generally speaking, does that, um, does that return with a lot of like, that's right, we're not. No, it doesn't. A lot of times when we bring correction or we bring rebuke in people's lives of the spiritually strong nature, it's usually not accepted very well. Not always, but usually not. But the Lord is saying to Isaiah, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of their situation. Rather, regard me as holy. You want to do what I'm calling you to do, Isaiah? It means in every way, acknowledge me. Allow me to direct your path. Care more about my holiness than about your own fears, cares, worries, agenda, so on and so forth. Interestingly enough, I don't know if you remember this, but when we studied the disciples' prayer, this, this uh, passage links with that in, Ma in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, you are to regard um, the Lord of hosts as, whole, as holy. Only he should be uh, held in, in, in awe. Only he should be feared. It's like what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, our Father in heaven, may your name be sanctified. It's the same cognate word there. May your name be sanctified. May, may what we care about most is your holiness in living that out. That is what God tells Isaiah. Isaiah, if you will focus on me, I will be your sanctuary of peace. One scholar, um, John Oswalt, writes this. I believe we have it up there. He says this about God's presence. God's presence is the one inescapable fact of human life. We will encounter him in one way or another. Those who make a place for him find him to be the glue that holds everything together. Those who ignore him find their lives to be askew and they cannot understand why. Isn't that poignant? We encounter God one way or another. God is with his people one way or another. Those who make a place for him, those who say, God, I, I will by faith I will by faith follow you. Find him to be the glue that holds everything together. But for those who ignore him, they have no idea why their lives are going off the rails. Isaiah's call is to proclaim truth, to live faithfully before God, and to wait upon the Lord to fulfill his promises. And one of the things this challenges me in is that there's a lot of times in my life where as a follower of Jesus, a, a person in whom the Spirit of God dwells, God is with me, as he is with every follower of Jesus. There's a lot of times in which I take my eyes 
off of him. And I begin to set them on the things of this world. I set them on, oh, I'll get that through work, or I'll get that through family, or I'll get that through this means or that means. And you begin to try to meet your needs in a whole host of different ways. But one of the messages to Isaiah is, Isaiah, there's only one way for you to experience peace in the midst of chaos, and that is in me. There's another challenge. How do we live amidst darkness today? His words to Isaiah are said to a a righteous and devout person, but a person who lives among darkness. Uh, It's not uncommon if you work in in an industry or an environment that might have um, uh, a colorful language, uh, that over time, if you're not really careful, you pick up some of those phrases. It's, it's not common. If, if you live amongst people uh, who, who are very much set towards one thing or another, for you to begin to share experiences. When you live amongst darkness, one of the things we must always remember is that we're called to be people of light. And that light should be that which shines forth, which means in the midst of darkness, our life looks very different. Isaiah's life as a prophet looks different. Sometimes we exclude God from our life. We replace him with science, maybe with things like horoscopes, with possessions, work, people. And when we do, we experience trying to fill a hole that only the Lord can fill. God does not leave his people, but we can choose to not actively dwell with him as his people. And the only way to be truly content in the midst of chaos is to say, God, I make you central today. If I were to ask you a brief question, is God central in your life today? Is your life marked by, in the midst of chaos, you say, God, I'm gonna honor you. God, I'm gonna honor your word. God, I'm going to follow what you have said, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it doesn't make sense even when it looks completely contrary to everything else around me. That's the call for Isaiah the prophet. That's the call for God's people, Judah. Now, to get back to Isaiah chapter 9, because that is our passage for today, but those are important thoughts, I believe, for us. In verse 2, you find, Isaiah 9 verse 2, you find the people walking in darkness, they've seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of the shadow of death. What is happening in these verses is that there has been a prediction made. It's made in the end of uh, chapter 9, verse 1. But in the future, he will bring honor by the way of the sea. If you want to, you can circle future in your Bible. But what I want to show you is there's something interesting going on in Hebrew. Um, When you enter into chapter 9, verse 2, you have what is called the perfect tense. You don't need to remember that, but it's the tense of completion. It's a tense that is often translated um, in a past tense in English. And what I want you to see is this. Isaiah is saying, in the future, here's what the Lord is going to do. But in verse 2, the people walking in darkness, they have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of darkness, the light has dawned. And then he says, you have enlarged the nation and have increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. You have shattered their oppressive yoke, the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor. 
What he's doing here is it's called a predictive prophecy. He's using past tense to describe things that happen in the future. So when Isaiah's writing this, it hasn't happened yet. The, the, the living out of verses two through five, uh, two through four and a half there, he's saying this is what is going to happen. And he uses past tense to say, I am so certain that this is what God is going to do that it is as good as done. It's kind of an interesting thing going on there. So future prophecy, but he's saying by using past tense, this is as good as done. You can bank on it. This will happen. And the land is in darkness. Hope is not lost because God will bring light to those living in darkness. So we looked at how does light come? Well, it comes through the Messiah. We talked about Simeon already, um, who is guided by the Spirit, and he sees the baby Jesus, and he says, a light, a light. Now, another thing in this passage is this reference to Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali are two tribes within Israel, and every tribe received a tribal inheritance or a tribal portion. And so I, ha I have a photo I want to show you of this just so you can kind of understand. If you look at the top of your map, and I forgot my pointer, sorry about that, uh, you see the big purple, okay, that's not it. It's the one to the left of that. It's the kind of like light yellow, and the one right beneath that, and here's what it looks like in real life. David, next photo. Um, they're a beautiful, lush, fertile land. They're at the north of Israel. And I told you, Assyria is coming in. And the first place they attack, the first place that they conquer, is this place. And you can maybe see why. It's flat. It's easy to move. It's a whole lot more difficult to go up into the mountains because that's a whole lot more work. Um, so they go here first. Not only is it flat, it's uh, closer to them than the rest of the land, but it's also lush. It's green. It's a place where you can grow crops. It's, it's a valuable place within the region. Zebulun and Naphtali have experienced humbling. They've experienced gloom. They've experienced distress. They're the first hit areas when, um, when the king chooses to trust Assyria and Assyria comes in and he completely owns the entire region. Um, these areas um, are also a, a, an area where it's easy to travel in and out. So you have a lot of mixture of Gentile influence with God's people. Now, now that's not a problem in the sense that God's people are called to be a light unto the nations. But it is a, a place where if you're not a light to the nations, you become like the darkness of the nations around you. Uh, in other words, Israel is called to be a light to the Gentiles for God, and if they don't dwell with God first, and if they don't trust God most, their light will be turned to darkness by the paganness of the surrounding nations. And that's what we see in both the, um, the kings of Israel and in the kings of Judah. More and more and more, Second Kings talks about how they become like the nations around them. This is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 4. Here's our Matthew reference. So please go with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, verse 12. 
records um, Jesus beginning of, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's been tempted by the adversary. And in Matthew chapter 4, it says this, verse 12. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth behind. He went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the shadow land of death, light has dawned. I find it altogether fascinating, remarkable, all sorts of things. That when Jesus begins his public ministry, he goes to the place that was one of the most hard hit one of the darkest areas, and it's there that he begins to shine his light. Not that his light already hadn't been shining, but Jesus begins to enter public ministry and teach and preach, and you'll find so much of Jesus' ministry happens in this place. Right around the Galilee area is where Jesus sets up home base, and it's there where he gives light through his teaching, through his living, through the proclamation of what he would do to bring salvation to God's people. Isn't that cool? Maybe. I think it is. So, um, Jesus fulfills Isaiah's prophecy in this manner. And I want you to imagine for a moment. Imagine to a moment that you are living in a land that has been wiped out by a foreign power. All right? So you live in America, that's okay, we can do that. You live in a land, it's wiped out by a foreign power. Questions uh, of why might emerge. Most importantly, questions of how is this going to be made right? What, what is it going to take in order for us to see freedom again? What, what is it going to take for us to experience the blessing of God again? What, what does it take for, for us to have the life we once had? Will a leader rise up to take control of the nation? Will a group of people rise up in some way, shape, or form? Will, will someone else come in and take out the oppressor within our midst? If you were living in a land dominated by a foreign oppressor, where would you look for rescue? How would you go about becoming free? Now, there's maybe many answers that you might have to that question, but what, what I want to suggest to you is that we do live in a land that is governed by a foreign oppressor. This is not a political statement, by the way. We live, a, we live in a land that is dominated and um, in, in which the oppression of sin is very strong. I'm not talking about another country. I'm talking about forces and powers that go beyond this world. And they come in the form of darkness. They come in the form of wickedness. They come in the form of, of choosing self, ultimately, over choosing anything else. We live in a dark, dark place in the world because sin has reigned and reigned and reigned. But I want to show you this verse. This verse came to me as I was thinking about this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, 
born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of our hearts, sent, his, uh, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The greatest wickedness that Judah and Israel faced was not Assyria, it wasn't Israel, it wasn't Aram or Damascus. The greatest wickedness that, that they faced was that they were people marked by sin. They were people who, who became more and more self-interested, self-preserving, and instead of looking to God for everything that they needed, they began to look at other things to replace God. And yet, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, Jesus, Emmanuel, who is God with us, to not only live and to teach and to die, but to put that all in a thing, to be a light, to, to be one to whom we can look and turn to in the midst of darkness. Because friends, we all dwell in darkness at some point or another. We, we were all born in darkness. We were all born in darkness. And the only way to remedy darkness is to have the light of Christ. There is absolutely no other way. In Israel and Judah's story, Isaiah's prophecy takes 700 plus years to come to fruition. But in God's perfect timing, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Can you imagine being just a common folk person in the northern part of Israel, as all of this is going down, you've got foreign invaders coming in, you're wondering what's gonna happen to your kids, you're wondering what's gonna happen to your spouse, you're wondering what's gonna happen to your mom or your dad, are we staying, are we going? What are they going to do to us? And the message of Isaiah is, trust me, trust me. God has not forget, forgotten you. God will be exactly what you need. Now, that does not mean that there will not be difficult days. But God's answer to all of this is a child. A child. You, you would think with an onslaught of an army, he might send a really strong king or a really brave prince, but he doesn't. He sends a child. A child who, who would in all ways completely change the world. God's provision of a king to rule and to reign in righteousness is his son saved by a child. And as you look down through the rest of the passage in Isaiah chapter nine, you see things like, you've enlarged the nation, verse three, and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at the harvest. Verse four, they've shattered their, you have shattered their oppressive yoke. This is Exodus language, by the way. It's, it's th this yoke of slavery, which is also a, uh, an analogy often in the scripture used with sin. It goes back to Egypt, but it goes to, to do with sin as well. You've shattered this oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor. And he says, just as you did on the day of Midian, you want to go read a great story from the book of Judges, you find out how a little young man named Gideon 
is called by God to bring deliverance. And it's not Gideon who brings deliverance, it's God who brings deliverance to the, to the nation as they're being um, oppressed by a foreign oppressor. In the middle of darkness, gloom, and despair, in the middle of armies coming in, God's answer is, here's my son. Three things as we close today. As we go through this Christmas season, we can become, I can become, I'll make this your issue, I'll I'll make this my issue. I can become focused on a lot of different things. And I can have my mind taken to this concern or that worry or this problem. One of the truths I want to remind you of today is to remember Emmanuel, God with us. Remembering that God is with you reminds us that even though we might face trouble and chaos and we don't know sometimes what God is doing or even where God is, the truth is is that God is with us to give us light, to give us life, and to guide us by his spirit. God's presence gives us wisdom in seeking his will by the scriptures, even in the midst of our darkness. I don't know about you, but sometimes I begin to stumble and wander in darkness. And I need to remember, God is with me. I also want to say, there, there's no middle ground. Um, the call to worship God is always exclusive. God never says, worship me and worship this other God. He, he never does it. The constant refrain of the scripture is, you shall have no other God except for me. Only God shattered the yoke of slavery in Egypt. Only God delivered his people from the Midianites. Only the zeal of the Lord of hosts can accomplish these things, Isaiah 9, verse 7 says. There's no middle ground. If you were to take an honest look at your life today, is it one that is turned to God, or is it one that has turned somewhere else? It's, it's really easy, by the way, to take your full focus and attention off the Lord and begin to widen it out. As you go through this Christmas, return, return to looking at Christ. Last thing is this, wait upon the Lord. God's prophecy regarding the Messiah's birth was fulfilled in Jesus, Luke chapter two. God's timing is not ours. It was 700 plus years before he sends his son, but it was in the full, when the fullness of time had come because only God can understand the big picture. Waiting for God's people is holy work. It is moment by moment saying, God, I trust you to provide. Whatever my situation, God, I trust you to provide. Where are you this morning? It may be that you are a follower of Jesus and the Lord is saying to you, I want you to take your eyes off of this and I want you to look at me. And I want you to honor and regard and revere me as holy because you don't need to be afraid of the things that are around you. I am with you, Emmanuel. It may be that you're here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus. 
and the world is really dark to you because it just doesn't make sense. It, it, what, what, what is dark is what seems light to you. And I, and I want to just encourage you in this way. The only way to experience life with God is to come to him by faith. You come to him by faith when you say, God, it's not of my own working that I can do anything on my behalf. Sure, you have a part in it, but there is nothing holy in me. The Bible says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. And yet it also says that God has shown his love for us in this, that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you, wherever you are at, whatever darkness you are walking in today, you can go to Jesus, who is the light of the world. And when you receive the truth and you believe the truth and you, you bank your life and trust on the truth that he died and he rose again to pay for your sins, you can find life, hope, and light because it's only in Christ you have light. Wherever you are at today, here's, what I, here's how I want us to begin our close. Is I wanna give you just a couple of moments of prayer. Where's darkness in your life? Where are you trusting in things that are not God? Where would God have you turn and say, God, I am all in looking at you, trusting you for everything I need. And then next week, we'll get to look at the identity and the nature of this man, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the father of eternity, and the prince of peace. Would you take just a few moments now of prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are with us, that you bring life, meaning, purpose to our lives. And, and God, we, we repent of the ways in which we have sought other things, in which we have looked to other people, other organizations, other, other areas of life for direction and for strength and for all, all sorts of things. God, forgive us for not trusting you. And yet, Lord, you meet us where we are. You don't abandon us as orphans. We become your sons and your daughters by faith when we trust that you have died and rose again for us. And we have the ability to cry, Abba, Papa, a, a term that means both intimacy and respect. Because, God, you live and you dwell with your people because you long relationship with us. Lord, I, I pray for each one here. I pray for the difficulties that they have in their lives and the, the areas in which, Lord, you are saying, trust me in this. And sometimes that can seem really, really difficult. But at the moment of surrender, at the moment of letting go, Lord, we find that that is where the arms, the arms of God sustain us and they hold us. Lord, we're able to come to you in faith because Jesus died and he rose again. Thank you for that gift. Now over around 2,000 years ago, you sent your son. At the perfect time, in keeping with your word, in keeping with your plan, you sent your son so that we might 
find life in his name. Lord, by your grace, help us to live, to live free, no longer chained to the yoke of sin, but free in your spirit. We bless you, Lord God. We thank you for your provision for us. We thank you for how you have met us here and how you shine your light through us. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message, or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.